0: stone with stone throw. I was startled to learn that, let's see, about 5% of the population here in the United States had lost a parent as a child. I thought there were more of us for some reason. Uh, Their book is titled A Music I No Longer Heard. The authors are Leslie Simon and Jan Johnson Drantel. And as I read this book over the weekend, um, It's really struck uh, something that I had put away. Um, It brought back so much of my own past that it occurred to me it was time to read something of my own, a piece that was written, oh, many, many years ago in the 70s. It's about the years after the death of my mother when I was 13. And um, I thought of it because it's just been republished in India, in Madras, it's in the Parnassus Book of World Poets. The editor used a slim volume of my early prose, um, a book that was first published in 77 and then reprinted in 1995. The title of that book is Over by the Caves. And the section I'm going to read today is titled Electra's Cursed. And those of you who are into Freudian symbolism will remember that Electra is analogous, say, to Oedipus. Electra is the daughter in the Greek tragedies, um, the stories. She's the daughter who has ambiguous feelings about both her parents. This book is an autobiographical collage. The names have been changed to protect the guilty. There are takes on childhood, adolescence, and finally on single motherhood in Berkeley in the late 1960s. It's a elliptical, like a stone skipping over the surface of the sea of consciousness. The earliest stories, the childhood stories, um, are surrealism. As we know, memory is so magical... It transforms things uh, over time. And then somewhere about the middle here I grow up and mother dies and the style, the tone in the piece Electra's Curse reflects the effort um, I made in adolescence to pull myself together, to accept life on new terms and get tough. (laughs) it's been 50 years and I'm still trying Uh, yes, this is Electra's Curse and it begins with uh, an epigraph from the D.H. Lawrence story The Woman Who Rode Away the woman speaks to the indigenous man the Indian, she says why am I the only one that wears blue He answers, it is the color of the wind. It is the color of what goes away and is never coming back, but which is always here, waiting like death among us. It is the color of the dead. And this is the story. Sometime in April... 1947. I attended the funeral of my mother. My mother's name was Kirsten. My father called her Kiki. After World War II, my mother divorced my father, but it was too late. She died anyway. We were both quite young at the time. She was nearly 44. I was nearly 14. Most of that eighth grade year, I attended Miss Evelyn Dreerson Muffy's ranch school for girls somewhere in the center of California. I thought I was going to spend Easter vacation with Anna and with her son, Nathaniel. Nathaniel didn't talk to me much anymore because he was post-puberty, but his mother made up for that. Anna was my mother's best friend. She lived in a beach house and survived on a shoestring. She could make anything out of nothing... During my Christmas vacation that year while I was staying at her house, she told me my mother was in a sanitarium. Anna hadn't written to me since Christmas. Still, I knew, I knew my mother had gone back to the desert, left the sanitarium, gone back to live with my father again. Somebody always tells you that stuff when I got to Anna's for Easter, I was having this fit to show her my new sandals and my Indian print dress. Nathaniel looked at me funny. He didn't say anything. He he usually said something, even now that we were old. Anna took me for a walk and told me my mother was dead, and I sat down on a stone wall for a while, and then after that I went to bed in Anna's room and she told everyone to let me alone. Anna and I took the train back to Arizona for the funeral. I never stopped talking the whole time. Anna made me drink her brandy. All the way from the seashore back into the desert, all the while I was talking to Anna without stopping, I kept thinking my father would be noble and tragic and meet our train and say something profound. He was in the kitchen in his bathrobe. He was very drunk and maudlin, and he began crying out to me just as if I were an adult. Anna was furious with him. I don't remember anything else until the next morning when we drove to the mortuary. I screamed and yelled and wouldn't get out of the car. My father had to drag me. I told everyone it was my nine-year-old brother, who screamed and yelled like that. I told everyone that for years. That's still the way I tell it sometimes. After we got inside, there we were inside the funeral parlor then, I could see my mother on a blue dais. She was laid out for everyone to see. Everyone could see her, and the camellias I have never worn camellias then everything was blue with blue lights so even the flowers looked blue it was like the last morning then I don't remember anything anything until the grave site and my father pulling out his great German pistol his Luger and threatening to shoot himself throw himself in the grave I remember thinking how undignified he was but mostly how it made me sick. The way he upstaged my mother all her life. And now he couldn't even let her have the center of attention when she was getting buried, for Christ's sake. My kid brother never said a word that I can remember. My sister, my older sister, she said some things, but I didn't care. I went back to Anna's. And then I went back to that school, to Evelyn Drearson Muffy's in Fallbrook, California. I really remember that school. I mean, it was the sort of place you never forget. Deep in the woods somewhere, and all the teachers lived in little houses with Siamese cats. I was stuck in one cottage with the 6th and 7th grades, about 14 of us all day, Every afternoon the teacher read to us. Her favorite book was Ramona. Evelyn Dreerson Muffy lined us up before dinner. We blew in her face to prove we hadn't been smoking. Friday nights there was a dance in the living room. A few boys straggled in to visit the older girls. The rest of us had to dance. "'with each other. "'I had this awful old-fashioned formal with puffed sleeves. "'It was a kind of blue brocade my mother bought the summer before. "'It did have long sleeves to start with, "'but then she took them apart and made the puffed ones. "'God, she even bought me these bloomer gym shorts "'in the seventh grade in a public school.' because she thought they were so quaint. I bought a straight pair without her knowing. Anyway, most of the girls wore strapless dresses to the Friday night dances, and there I was, looking like the turn of the century. Some of the girls in the high school used to sneak out and meet boys at night. They cut their window screens at the edges and then tucked them back so no one could tell they were loose. I was afraid if Miss Muffy ever found out, she would call me in for questioning. She gave me the old third degree one time in regard to some missing cupcakes. She shamed it out of me. She had one of those looks you don't see much anymore. All the girls did to me that time was short-sheet my bed and take my extra food, but they said I better keep my mouth shut in future. I quit riding after that because the girls always went bareback or went swimming nude or took their horses in the river with them. That stuff was strictly against the rules, and I was a lousy liar. Old Miss Muffy had a weird eye. Finally, I took this bad fall off my horse. We slept in the mud, actually. So then I said I was afraid of horses, and so I got permission to quit, and I went for walks instead. I wandered off into the hills, and I sat on the rocks like a reptile in the sun. After my mother died that spring, things got easier. I went around very silent and tragic for a while. You get more respect when someone dies. The only thing, I got the poison oak so bad I couldn't sleep. They tied my hands so I couldn't hurt myself. I didn't go for walks anymore. Miss Muffy called me in to tell me about death and about going on after all the way my mother would have wanted me to. It was very embarrassing. I didn't have to ride anymore. That was fine with me. But I did miss one girl with dark red hair. She was an Amazon when she was riding. She was the same color as her horse. She always left the stable with an English saddle, boots, riding crop and everything. Then she would throw everything down under a tree, toss a rope around her horse's neck, and jump barefoot onto his bare back. Then she would ride out into the water nearly nude, sometimes swimming beside her horse, with his mane and her hair the same dark color on the surface of the water. After I quit the riding... She did come to my room a few times to sit... and comb out her thick, matted hair. It took a long time. She used a grooming comb from the stable. Sometimes she found a tick. I began to read a lot. I started talking to myself. There was a long rock... in the middle of a stream surrounded by beds of stones and rushing water. No poison oak in the water, so I went there every day and I sat. I read romantic poets and plays about problems. I decided I belonged in the theater. I began to see that arrogance and solitude were the best defense for me. I wrote poems and hid them Edna St. Vincent Millay was my mother's contemporary almost. I reasoned that they both died of love. I read Millay's poems. Wine from these grapes I shall be treading Morning and noon and night until I die. Stained with these grapes I shall lie down to die. Now, what that had to do with my mother's bourbon and camel cigarettes, I'm not sure, but it seemed to fit. In June, we had to graduate. The eighth grade wore white formals with long sleeves. We carried a daisy chain. The seniors wore pastel dresses and carried a chain of dark red roses. I recited a Longfellow poem about the road of life and broken steps where the feet seek to climb, I got a part in the play. I played an old man. Whenever there was a crisis, I rode on stage on a jackass and tolled a bell, fell down on the grass and rolled down the hill. The day of the ceremonies, Evelyn Drearson Muffy, dressed "'in a rusty amber gown with amber beads. "'Her hair was done in a pre-Raphaelite style. "'As we began our slow procession to the amphitheater in the trees, "'we crossed the road leading from the school gate. "'It was a twisting lane, I remember, cut out of the trees. "'The branches overhead were locked together. "'Just as Miss Muffy reached the edge of the lane at the head of our procession, "'my father's blue convertible roared around the curve full of drunken pals and his two large boxer dogs. Miss Muffy stepped forward and raised an imperious arm. The honking ceased, but my father put on an act all that afternoon, imitating Miss Muffy raising her arm like Caesar to halt the progress of the barbarians. It's odd, though. Eight years later, in college, again in a woman's school, Mills College, yes, and finally dressed in black, I looked up automatically from the small Greek theater. and There he was again, of course, coming over the top of the hill, high above the rows of stone steps. Only had one dog that time. Last time I let him get away with it. Anna always said, very F. Scott Fitzgerald hoopla. I call it scene-stealing. When I graduated from high school, he was overseas, somewhere in Korea, sewing up the wounded. I got off the hook in 1951. Everything went off without a hitch that night in Laguna Beach. I gave a speech with the theatrical tableau going on behind me, arty as all hell. My whole class got drunk in a beach house belonging to Betty Davis. I spent the money my father sent on a chic dress, a black sheath, instead of one of those phony formals. High school was great when it ended. Anyway, we cleared out of Evelyn Dreerson Muffy's that night back in 1947, started to drive back to Arizona, had a blowout on the road the next afternoon... Rolled all over the desert. My sister couldn't hold the car on the road. Twenty years old and couldn't hold a car on the road. After we rolled over a few times, the car landed on its side. The Mexican railroad workers ran over to the tracks and hauled all of us out the windows. There was a lot of gas pouring out of the car, and we scrambled up to the road fast as we could. Trouble was, we'd all taken our shoes off in the car. When we got out on the sand... Our feet began to burn. (laughs) All of us cut and bruised, but most of all, our feet were burnt. When I could walk, my father sent me to a dude ranch in the mountains behind Tucson. I stayed most of that summer. Anna came for a few weeks, but she didn't marry my father, which was a considerable relief to me. A cowboy made passes at my sister. He was a grilled cheese blonde with pure gold skin. Never wore a shirt. Once, we stopped at the swimming hole and his legs were white as a baby's. So I loved him somewhat. Maybe more than my Amazon friend at school who was gold all over like a goddess. The cowboy flirted with my sister but his real girlfriend worked on the ranch. She was very direct in the way of Western women, uh, dead on the level, as they say. Once someone called her out of the kitchen after she put the food on the table, and she just laughed and said, name your poison, but get it yourself. The woman who owned the ranch was a patient of my father's. She had arthritis, but she could still ride a horse. I had to room with her daughter, which was awful, as I am easily intimidated by girls. This daughter, she had good breasts. She didn't talk. She wasn't mean, though, not like the girls at school. She told me to pull my bed away from the wall and empty my boots because of the scorpions and the centipedes and so on. Millipedes came up out of the pipes in the bathtub if you didn't keep the plug in. When my sister came, she got a room of her own. She got a room of her own because she always had a room of her own. My mother... Saw to that. And I'm going to have to skip over some of this. I'm reading to you a piece called Electra's Curse from a work of my own called Over by the Caves that's just been published out in India. And I'm doing this because tomorrow, in the second part of this show, I will be talking to um, two authors who have just published a collection of reminiscences uh, from the lives of people who lost a parent when they were very young. Those of us who um, were orphans early, I hadn't realized that that we're only about 5% of the population. Um, Let's see how much time I have left. I have to skip over a lot of material here. This is the basically the year following the death of my own mother when I was 13 um the next year yes uh after a year in Tucson living with a a patient of my father's a friend of the family I go back again to the mountains the name of that town was Wilcox, Arizona it's about 50 miles from Tombstone by then my father had built a fort with a stockade all around it uh flagstones. He liked them set in blue cement. Yes, my father was married. He had another daughter by then. She played on the flagstones, and we mixed more blue cement. Uh, the fort was never finished while we lived there. They built a handball court first, and then everyone had a bedroom and a bathroom and then a fireplace. Ah, oh, But the kitchen was in the laundry room. I made friends with the wife of a Mexican construction worker. She told me all about how dull sex was after you got married. Her husband let me mix cement. A local artist in the 18th year of his blue period painted our bathroom ceilings and the walls. Uh, mine had seagulls and sea foam on blue waves. I took care of my new baby sister and tried to set my hair and learn to drink Irish mist with my father. Finally... My father's manic phase ended in general disaster. Everything collapsed in violence and ruin. I ran away a few times, but always came back. My father shot a man, broke his arm. He set the arm, but that didn't help in court. He was blackballed from the Rotary Club and funny things like that. Uh, After the court case, the axe fell... It was like an Ibsen play. He lost his license to practice medicine in that state. We left the fort late, late at night, driving back to the seashore, escaping once again. My father shipped out to an island in the Pacific, gone back in the Navy. Uh, He did it before anyone knew uh, what had happened. Uh, The day before we left, the day before we drove away from Arizona... I walked the five or more miles into the desert out to the graves looking for my mother's but somehow I couldn't find it. Uh, I was sorry because I'd sworn to myself that if I ever, ever got out of this town I'd never come back to this dead place in the desert. I sat down on a stone like a reptile in the sun and said good night Mrs. Calabash wherever you are. And if I don't see you again, remember I called. I know we killed you, or he did, but... What the hell, you asked for it. On the way home... I walked on the dirt. On the dirt road... Instead of through the cactus, the way I'd come... My high school principal drove by and saw me there. He stopped the car. And his wife got that motherly look. Uh so full of empathy or compassion. Uh, She didn't ask me where I'd been, and I hated her for it. Her daughter was this friend of mine at school, taught me to shave my legs. I wanted to tell her that her daughter was a tramp, if ever there was one. I wanted to tell them both what I really knew about their precious only daughter. But what difference did it make, anyway? I was leaving... And I was never coming back. So I told them I didn't want a goddamn ride. And that is the end of that piece. I thought I would have time to read it all, but I only read about half of it. Uh, Dylan Thomas wrote, as you will remember, the great poem he wrote, um, after the first death, there is no other. Or perhaps it's just the same death over and over, uh, I believe that loss, well, early loss, alters our view of the world. Um, There's no question that such an event marks us for life. (laughs) Some of us have a highly developed tragic sense. Like Dorothy Parker, I developed an edge, what we call the giant shrug. It doesn't affect people the same way. Eleanor Roosevelt had a much sweeter temperament. Uh, Her father died of alcoholism. I guess she romanticized him. She didn't develop the cynicism. I remember stories of Eleanor Roosevelt and her intense grief when FDR's marital infidelities broke her heart and she, she kept visiting a statue, a statue of a woman in grief in a graveyard in Washington. Um, you'll remember Paul Robeson lost his mother when he was six. She died in a kitchen fire. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Jane Fonda's mother committed suicide... The loss of the mother changed Virginia Woolf, the Bronte sisters. Uh, It's an amazing phenomenon, this business of early loss. It's been 50 years. Yes, uh, (laughs) it's time. We had some closure here. Yes, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can.
1: The following are the voices of three of the candidates for KPFA's Community Board of Directors. Ballots were sent on October 16th to all subscribers. Please vote. Information on all 22 of the candidates can be found at kpfa.orgslash elections. My name is Sar Randawa, and I'm a candidate for KPFA's Local Station Board. Over the past three years, I have served on the LSB and the Pacifica National Board where I'm currently the vice chair. Over more than half a century, KPFA has stood up to its challenges and fulfilled its mission to educate and inform its listeners about the underlying causes of conflicts and provide outlets for the creative expressions of our communities. Now, KPFA and Pacifica need to focus on expanding our shrinking listener base, raising money to adapt to new technologies, and fulfilling Pacifica's founding mission. I'm deeply committed to the fundamental values of Pacifica and its listener-supported economic model. I will continue to contribute to its commitment to peace, justice, arts, culture, and music. I'm Brandawa and respectfully ask for your vote. For further information, please log on to KPFAListeners.org. My name is Dave Heller, and I am running for the KPFA Local Station Board. Read my campaign statement at www.alliancefordemocratickpfa.org. I served on the board of Californians for Electoral Forum, which helped to win instant run of voting in San Francisco, Berkeley, and San Leandro. I am active with the Green Party and the 9-11 Truth Movement. I, Dave Heller, want to help the station become stronger by creating a KPFA that has greater transparency and listener input. This is why I joined the Alliance for a Democratic KPFA. The collective action of the listeners saved KPFA from the clutches of a group seeking to emasculate the station. It is through informed, collective action that we can expand listenership and bring programs to new levels of professionalism. Let's bring back the folio to give listeners a place to dialogue. It is through dialogue that we will expand and invigorate the station by reaching its mission of truly free speech radio. So please rank me, Dave Heller, and my colleagues at wwwalliance at the top of your ballot. idea, a progressive radio station with the latest news and views that breaks stories, that includes communities and issues not covered elsewhere in our area. Now here's the catch. Is listenable whenever you tune in. My name is Sasha Futran and I'm running for KPFA's local station board. Right now, listenership is way down. There hasn't been a stable station manager ever since the struggle and no program director at all. Nothing has changed, and KPFA does not appeal to most listeners in the Progressive Bay Area. Nothing has changed, and that's the board's responsibility. My background is in radio, and I've also been a lifelong media activist. Please vote for me, Sasha Futran. Thank you. KPFA needs your vote. Find information on all of the board candidates online at kpfa.org slash election and in the ballot handbook that arrives.